You're listening to The Issues Podcast. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. This is an episode of The Issues Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Russ, Tom Brennan, and Martin Wickens. Could you repeat that, off? Tom? What'd you I say? You're proud, proud of me? We're, we're proud of you, too. Pride's a sin, actually, so we're not. We're pleased with you. Well, there we go. <coughs> Good. So what are you going to tell sure us what one recording. of these... Are you going to tell us what one of these two books is? Because we're just, you know, sitting on oh, pins and yes. needles waiting. Yes. So our, um, our podcast, we plan to begin with somewhat of a, a different approach from time to time. And, and we did this in the last episode and we do it in this one as well. And just give folks a book review of something that we are reading uh, or have read. And I was telling the guys off offline just a moment ago that um, I've actually read or am reading two books since the last time we recorded one of these book reviews. I'm very, very pleased with myself. So, and Tom said he's proud of me. Is this where the editor or the the person who who edits this is going to insert like a, an applause line or something? You know, a bunch of people. Well, since cheering. the editor is me, yes. <laughs> Thank you, you for the idea. You're welcome. <laughs> no, I want to hear we're, from you guys very... first. So, Martin, Martin, do you have a you have a book that you'd like to review for us today? I would. Um, well, I'm going to do it a little bit differently to the to the question asked. You know, sure. like a politician doesn't answer the question he's asked. No, I, I would uh, say I've read, I, I've concluded the reading of about eight or nine books that are commentaries, not since we last recorded, but over the last couple of years as I've been preaching through the book of Acts. And so I'm coming to the final verses this week. And so all of the commentaries I've been reading, I've been turning to the final page and putting them away. And I don't know about you, but there's kind of a sadness there. Like, I'm putting old friends away because I've been living with them for the last two years almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so th- the one that I would kind of recommend with some caveats, knowing that the author isn't necessarily 100% where we would be in, in everything, but it's uh, G. Campbell Morgan's commentary on the Book of Acts. Um, for the most part, he is very, very helpful. There are some things around uh, the doctrine of the church where we'd maybe differ, but that doesn't tend to come out all that much. I just I find it very helpful because he brings out the I think the narrative more. I mean, I enjoy Stuart Custer's book, his commentaries. They're verse by verse, very structured. Um, John Phillips, of course, is in the same vein as Custer, um, more conservative, more fundamental, I think. But again, it's verse by verse, chapter by chapter, very much focused on the structure. Whereas G. Campbell Morgan, I feel, was more focused on the narrative. And so there were verses that he maybe never mentioned specifically, but his grasp of the the truth I found very, very mm-hmm. helpful. So uh, kind of a recommendation of his book, but also in terms of sermon preparation, um, I think different types of commentaries are uh, kind of useful in that sense. Very good. I'm going to go next. I want Tom to go last because he's probably going to school me. Um, two books I would mention. I finished Mike Pence's autobiography. Very my good kid, book. My son bought me that for Christmas. I haven't read it yet. Oh, I really enjoyed it. And I'll tell you why I enjoyed it. Um, of course, there's probably a bunch of people out there listening right now going, traitor, but I disagree. Uh, number one, Mike Pence is from Indiana and I'm from Indiana. And I loved reading about his uh, his recounting of his early childhood in Indiana. Uh, made me very pleased. I use that word carefully, Tom. <laughs> pleased to be a Hoosier. And even talks in that book a little bit about where the word Hoosier came from or may have come from. It's it's a bit speculative. Um, I was going to say, enjoyed, what is a Hoosier? But I didn't want to like detract from the seriousness of your review. A Hoosier. It's not Husa. It's Hoosier. <laughs> And you'll have to read the book. What? That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I'll borrow yeah. yours. Um, so very good on that point. I was telling someone the other day, his his picture of the of a, the America of his childhood is the America that I think we would all love to see. Just beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. He talks about his political life. Um, of course, I'm very familiar with it, uh, having been born and raised in Indiana. 
And then obviously his uh, experiences in the White House as the vice president and then the falling out that he and the president had. And, you know, I think if you're a Christian that you have to believe that both sides need to have need to be heard. And so I thought it was good for him to get his side out there. Even in criticism, he is gracious, Mm -hmm. which cannot be said for others. And so I I enjoyed it. The other book that is it's somewhat of a religious tone to it. it was recommended to me. Um, just recently, and I picked it up, and it's been a, a very easy read with very good, very good content thus far. Um, it's called The Way of the Shepherd, and it's written by Kevin Lehman and Bill Pentec. And it's a business book, but it the principles of it, you would think, came straight out of Psalm 23 or, or somewhere in the scripture. Um, he talks about a shepherd's responsibilities, basically seven, seven secrets to managing productive people would be the subtitle to the book. But in it, there are a lot of really good things, whether you're a parent uh, or a pastor, um, business leader. And of course, you know, it's, it's one of those where you have to eat the meat, spit out the bones. But I have found it to be a, a very beneficial book to me in, in my current state of life. So good. those are my two, my two books that I'll mention today. I'm going to go a different direction and mention a book I wanted to like and thought I was going to like and didn't at all. Ah, uh, The Contrarian. So, who, me? I'm shocked you would have. <laughs> I'm a harmless, lovable fuzzball. Anyway, mm-hmm. so I'm preparing to teach a class on marriage here at our church, and so I've been reading Marriage Heavy for the past X number of months or whatever. But one of the books that I have read in preparation for this is a rather well-known book that is that is used by a lot of evangelical churches uh, for premarital counseling. And maybe maybe one of you have, have already read this or not, and maybe your opinion would be, would be different, but the book is Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, Seven Questions to Ask Before and After You Marry by Les and Leslie Parrott. So it's by a husband and wife team, and I'm not familiar with them, wasn't familiar with them before picking up the book, other than I had seen you know, in conversations with preacher friends that a number of my preacher friends use their Simba system, which essentially is an online questionnaire that, that you know, fiancés answer and that matches them up and not matches them up like dating, but helps them understand where they differ as they prepare to get married, mm-hmm. that sort of a thing. I don't care much about those type of things, but you hand me a book and I'll read it. So I read the book. The book was was – First of all, it was annoying because every other page, they were trying to point you to the internet to buy their Simba system. That's mm-hmm. just an, a point of annoyance. Uh, as an author, mm-hmm. I can appreciate trying to sneak in references to your other stuff so that people will buy it, but it wasn't snuck in. It was just like blatant advertising, so that that I found to be annoying. But my problem with the book was not that it was annoying. My problem with the book, and I'm prepared to get feedback for this that's negative, disagrees with me. My problem with the book is I don't think it's scriptural. There's very little of the Word of God mentioned in it. It It is a practical book, or maybe I should say a pragmatic book, and clearly, Les and Leslie Parrott have experience in counseling marriages and in helping people. They mention a lot of very practical things about marriage and about preparing for marriage, but they throw the odd verse in here or there, and that's all they do. They, they just reference a verse here and there, and it is it is nothing like an explanation of what the Bible teaches about marriage and an application of that. It's not. It's a book about mm. what a what counselors think you should do to have a good marriage, and they'll throw a couple Bible verses in along the way. Let me give you one particular thing that stood out to me, hor- horrified me. In the section they write about uh, cohabiting is the term they use. We would use the phrase living together um, that many people in our generation do. They rightly point out that numerous studies have shown you're much more prone to divorce if you do that than if you do not which is spot on because you're not entering into marriage with a sense of commitment, rather with a sense of let's try this, see if it works. But then they 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 say something truly horrific, which is that this book is written to, to people preparing to be married, and they say, before you enter into a cohabiting relationship, you should make sure you talk with someone about that. Talk with your pastor, talk with your rabbi, mm. talk with your religious leader. It's a, it's a terrible approach. Essentially, they're ignoring the fact that it's fornication or, you know, and they don't even bring that up. They just say, Mm -hmm. before you make that big of a step, go talk to somebody about it. And to me, that just summarized the biblical hole in the middle of that book. 
and mm-hmm. but yet it's widely used in our day. I picked it up because I want to find a good book that I can give to to couples preparing to be married, and I'm still looking because that ain't sure. It. Wow, it is. T- it's tough to find a book that says exactly what you wanted to say. I found I I tend to compile thoughts from a number of different books, and um, I I like Jim Benny's The Ministry of Marriage. But yes. even then, there's there's one or two things in there that I think are not the principle, but maybe the phrasing of it is a little bit outdated. And so it's with caveats that I would recommend it. But it's a tough I, I agree tough with one. you about that. But that is a very good book on marriage. But a book on specifically to give to engaged couples about, you know, essentially a, a book form of premarital counseling. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I still – and if our listeners know one, I'll be happy to, to entertain suggestions. You want to reach out to me, I'll be happy to – Look up whatever you should you write one. Send me. Absolutely <laughs> yeah, sure. not. <laughs> well, before maybe I shouldn't mention this because I'm asking, but have you guys ever heard of the book before you before you say I do by Norman Wright and Wes Roberts? I, I'm buying no. that book to look at it. So, is it a secular book or a Christian book? Well, I thought it was a Christian book. Yeah, but well, now that I'm looking at it, I'm not sure. I picked it up. <laughs> well, you know, in a, the way I look at. No, the way I look at what you said there, though, is about what they said, is that too often we take this kind of accommodating, pandering approach instead of taking a direct oh, yeah. biblical approach. And that that sounds like, unfortunately, that's what they did. So, well, Snowflake and that leads everywhere. us. Yes, exactly. That leads us into a little bit of what we're talking about today. A lot of it. It's a comparison to what we're talking about today. We're, we're not reviewing a book. We're going to be studying a book. And this is the first time we're doing this. We're going to be studying the book of Habakkuk um, together for the next few moments here on the Issues Podcast. Well, so, I, I enjoy Habakkuk. It's something I've gone through a number of times. Wait, 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 just wait, wait, in wait. What, what did you just say? Habakkuk. Mm. I, I was waiting for that to come up. So we are going to have issues. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but go on. Well, there's a right way and a wrong way to say it, and I'll, I'll let our listeners figure it out. Yeah, you're not kidding. But go on. No, I, I just enjoyed the book. I enjoy the theme of it. There are two or three uh, sections that I just really feel are helpful and applicable. And so when we were discussing a topic for today, this seemed like something that would be beneficial for us. So I'm glad I'm glad we're doing it. Yeah. So can you take 60 seconds or, I don't know, 90 seconds and walk us through? It's a short book, three chapters. Walk us through briefly what it's for, who it's to, why it's written, what it's trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think I can do it in three sentences. God said, judge the people. God said, I will. Habakkuk said, not like that. And God said, yes. And then Habakkuk said, okay. <laughs> that was I was waiting to expand for that. I said, but that was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, I think I said three sentences, but that was four. No, Habakkuk is one of the last, if not the last prophet before the exile. And th- there's definitely a progression with the minor prophets and, and the major prophets, not in terms of book volume, but, you know, not in terms of importance, but the, the book size. And you have the initial prophets who are saying, if you don't repent, judgment will come. And then steadily the tone became more and more one of it's guaranteed. There's no, right. there's right. no getting away from it. And so Habakkuk is right at the end, and it's very soon after he writes that Israel go into exile. Um, and his message is, is one of, and I did summarize it briefly there in a kind of a, a lighthearted <laughs> way, uh, but he very much is, is wrestling with the Lord because he wants to see justice done for those who are oppressed. But when God gives him what's going to happen as a prophecy, Habakkuk wrestles with God's response, and then the remainder of the book is is him coming to terms with God's will, basically. Uh, and there are a few verses that are highlights. It, you know, certainly one of the main verses in chapter two, saying the just shall live by faith, uh, by his faith, um, and that's quoted three times in the New Testament. And so it obviously has a major bearing on uh, the New Testament uh, theology for us as, as Christians. And so, yeah, I think there's just a lot there that we can delve into and find as a help for ourselves. It seems to be generally accepted that Habakkuk, I did say that right, didn't I, Tom? Uh, Habakkuk, um, the name is generally believed to mean something like one who embraces. 
and I've read a, a lot of the people who've written on Habakkuk is is that that key verse, the just shall live by faith, is kind of the essence of of why his name would mean something to us, right? He he's grasping at at anything to try to understand why God is doing what he's doing in the way that he's doing it. And in the end, the answer is he has to embrace God by faith. He has to hold on to God. Um, that verse, interestingly, in the New Testament, it appears once in Hebrews, and then Paul uses it twice. If you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, then then Paul used it all three times. Right. But for sure, the other two instances outside of Hebrews have to do with justification by faith. And so there's, mm-hmm. it's really not limited in its scope of of application. It seems. It seems like it's very broad. Uh, broad oh, application of faith. I think it's wider even than that because I don't think it's just justification by faith. I think it's right. also how you live, right? Mm-hmm. The same Paul said, you know, you live by faith, right? Lester Wallace's famous song, famous theme. But you 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 come to become alive. The just you, you the justified become alive by faith. But then the way they live out their life is by faith. So yeah, it has a tremendous. Tremendously wide application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to say, and you said it so well, so much better than I did. <laughs> that's excellent. So the overview, you know, we have a we have a, a prophet of God who he really isn't. We don't we don't really know a lot about him. And I was actually just thinking the other day, uh, think <laughs> started to say thinking. I was preaching the other day, and this popped into my mind, and I said it. So I think out loud when I'm preaching. But I was talking about how God would often send a message to someone who is just kind of out of the blue. I mean, there would be a, co- a prophet in the congregation that God would use to speak to the, the powerful king. And God is using Habakkuk in this sense um, to prophesy to his people. So, yeah. It does seem like I he may there's... have had some recognition because he introduces himself as the prophet, Habakkuk the prophet, as if that was a recognized position he held. So he's, he's somewhat anonymous, I think, to us, but I think he had some mm. some status in the, the day. And as well, he had the opportunity, um, seems like he was a, mus- a musician in chapter three, verse one. He says a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon uh, Shigonoth and our Hebrew listeners will uh, shudder at my pronunciation. But, um, you know, that was an instrument as a musical term. And at the end, in the last uh, verse, he says to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So he's kind of anonymous to us, but I think he was a prophet that was known and a musician that had the option to say, okay, now sing this. There's an argument to be there's an argument to be made that he was a Levite based upon his allusions in chapter three to, you know, play this upon my stringed instruments, that he had the right to be in the temple. And this was something that he could instruct almost like a, a an Asaph type of a guy would instruct. And so I, mm-hmm. I find his background is interesting from the standpoint of based upon when he, when he preached, he almost certainly would have had to live through the end part of Manasseh's reign. And Manasseh, was the worst king that Judah had. The Bible says that during his time, the streets of Jerusalem ran with blood. I think, based upon preaching through Isaiah, that Manasseh killed Isaiah. Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was put between two boards and cut in half by Manasseh. And of course, later Manasseh would come to Christ uh, miraculously, amazingly. But he would have seen, Habakkuk would have seen all of that violence up close and personal. And, you know, he, he would have, heard the preaching or at least known the preaching of Isaiah. Uh, and, and I think there's evidence of that in the book probably, but that's, that's the time frame that he's in. And, and it, it helps me when I read it to understand who he is and where he's coming from, you know, what he's, because the book is not so much a sermon. Uh, in fact, I, I think only one sentence in the whole book of Habakkuk is given to people. It's a conversation between Habakkuk and God. It's, it reminds me of Job like mm-hmm. that, right? It's a it's a trying to reconcile what God is doing or not doing in the mind of his of his saint. And essentially that that is that Habakkuk is struggling with God's judgment. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. He's how did you phrase that again? Those those three sentences you turn into four sentences? Say that again. That was really good. <laughs> God uh, said he's so gonna judge. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So God Go said, you know, Habakkuk said judge, judge the wicked. God said, I will. And Habakkuk said, not like that. And then he said, okay. You know, Habakkuk said, okay, in the end, you know, he had to surrender himself. So yeah, I mean, he just, he he wanted God to correct what he perceived to be wrong in society, which is where 
the book opens up and then he has to wrestle with knowing that God, God knows best. And he gives, I, I he, love he, that. Go ahead. Tom. Well, he no, gives I was just thinking with that. <laughs> go ahead. All right. All right. I really will go. He almost gives God a theological argument where he says, in essence, you know, you're of purer eyes than to behold evil. How could a God as holy as you, you, someone as wicked as Babylon? Again, it reminds me of Isaiah of set forth your cause and your reasons, you know, why you're, why you're going to, you know, talk to me about something. Um, so it's, it, it's not just an emotional reaction, although it is obviously Habakkuk's emotional, but he's saying mm-hmm. to God, it's not, it's not who you are. It's not, it doesn't match your character. It doesn't match up with what yeah. we know about you. Do well, you so think we kind of when begin... God says this, go ahead, Martin. No, no, you, you got Stephen. You've been told to have it twice now. <laughs> um, that's okay. Do you think that when when God is saying in verse five of chapter one, "I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you," do you think that was ap- applying specifically to the fact that God was doing the right thing, but in a way that Habakkuk couldn't understand? That uh, yes, loosely because that is the sentence in the book that I think is actually Habakkuk giving giving to the people of Israel. He's he's saying to the people of Israel, "You're not paying attention to the Lord, and God's going to do something marvelously." Um, so yeah, I mean, I, loosely, I agree with you. Well, it was a question. <laughs> mm, <laughs> I agree statement. with your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think both the the means and the result of the judgment is something that they just couldn't comprehend. Uh, the fact that God would use the Chaldeans as wicked as they were and the absoluteness of the judgment was something that they couldn't really comprehend. And, and verse 8 and 9, it talks about the the swiftness of it and the devastation. Um, and, you know, it, it's just something they couldn't have imagined before it took place. How does that play out in our lives today. I mean, what's the application here? We're, we basically just stayed in chapter one thus far, but God is judging. He's judging in a way that doesn't make sense to Habakkuk. He is, he is going to do this because God is holy, sovereign, just, and right. And in our day, I mean, we are seeing in many cases the judgment of God. And I don't mean necessarily fire from heaven. I'm talking about the prevalence of sin and just the the pervasive nature of 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 how humanism is taking over the church and and evil doctrines of devils the the new testament calls it so what are we to do with what habakkuk is dealing with in chapter 1 as it relates to now and in this day can you expand on that concept because i think that's a that's a really key point brother russ can you expand on your concept that the sin that we're seeing mm-hmm. is the judgment of god well, I think it's Romans one. It's the reprobate mind. I think hmm. Martin, you may have made this conversation or made this point in conversation to me the other day. I don't remember, but you know, we're we're seeing a lot of just unthinkable things present themselves in religion and mm-hmm. in mainstream Christianity. I, you can't see the air quotes, but they're there. Such as, I mean, women preachers and an embrace of alternative lifestyles and homosexuality. And Martin, I think the point you made was that that is the judgment of God. That right. God is judging us by allowing us to go on in our reprobate minds. Yeah, I think so. And, and it's something that I've been trying to come to terms with. And I want to return in a minute to the idea of how you know our perception of oppression and what's going on in society and, and the need for God to judge and putting ourselves in the mindset of the people who couldn't imagine the judgment coming. But to answer you know, this, this particular point. Um, I don't, you know, we always talk about, okay, well, if, if America doesn't turn, they're going to be judged. If America doesn't turn, we're going to be judged. But the more I thought about it and prayed and looked in the word, I, I think everything we're seeing now is the judgment. Uh, we're looking at things around us today as being a cause for judgment, but I think they're the result of judgment. And you mentioned Roman ones, uh, Romans 1, and I think that's uh, exactly right. You know, the, the cause is that if you look in verses 18 through 21, um, men denied the existence of God, and so they didn't hold themselves accountable to God. They denied their creator. They didn't glorify him through obedience. They were unthankful. And it struck me before how being unthankful 
comes before all of these other things. And yet how often do we preach against the other things, but not simple gratitude? Um, and mm -hmm. I'll try not to monologue this too much, but, um, you know, if you thank God that you exist, if you thank God that you're a man or a woman, if you thank God for his gracious offer of salvation and you thank God for his law, then that's going to put you in a much different position. And so much that we see around us today, it's people denying all those things. If you look at the book of Amos, which I've preached through, there's a statement in Amos where it says, he's describing all these judgments that are going to fall, but then he says, a famine of hearing the word of God. Mm. The famine of hearing the word of God was the judgment that God was exactly. not going to work. He was not going to move. And because of that, the word of God would not be preached. He wouldn't call men to preach. People would not respond. And so I think that's exactly what you see when you, Brother Russ, you said in one of our, our episodes recently that you were talking with Brother Paisley in Washington and how he said soul winning is harder now than it was when he was younger. And it's that same idea. People are more resistant to preaching. They're more resistant to soul winning. They're more resistant to you know, anything biblical. And that's an indication that God has not totally and completely walked away. But but I think that goes right along the line with what the two of you are saying about, about the judgment of God is already here. And that's where Romans goes to next. So the effect, you know, the cause is they deny God and they're ungrateful. That, that's the cause. The effect is they become vain in their imaginations. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They think themselves wise when they're becoming fools. They corrupt the image of God and the image of man. And so God gives them up to their uncleanness. He gives them over to it. Right. And right. so they dishonor their bodies among themselves. They worship the created more than the creator. The, um, all the, the, the homosexuality and the sexual sins and, you know, these things that we, I think, so often think are going to be the cause of a judgment, they're actually the effect of a previous sin. Well, and, and don't you think that's the application, right? So in verse 6 of chapter 1, God is raising up the Chaldeans who are they're bitter and hasty, they're wicked, they're anti-God, all of that, and that's the judgment. And Habakkuk You've almost got me converted to saying it the other way every time now I have to think about it. Uh, Habakkuk is is not good with that. He said, Lord, you're of purer eyes than to behold evil. I mean, how could you use this evil, evil people to judge your, your nation? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't want to get off. I'm asking for correction here if that's necessary. I don't want to get off into the weeds. Yeah, no, I don't think that's exclusively true in the sense that, yes, I believe that being away from the Lord is judgment from God. But I do think Habakkuk shows us clearly that there is judgment on top of judgment. There are layers of God's judgment. Sure. And I think there's I think there's clear teaching in this book that then not only are, are people not going to respond to God, but that God is going to actively do something, essentially spanking the children of Israel using Babylon as the whooping stick. Um, well, no. So how many of us and how many of our listeners will look back 20 years ago, 40 years ago, and look back to the Andy Griffith era and say, you know, are we saying that what was going on in America 20, 40 years ago has what's led to judgment today? And this is what Habakkuk is wrestling with. He's like, yeah, we're bad, but we're not as bad as that. Um, and so this isn't a hill I'd die on, but uh, I'm more and more convinced that what we're going through today is not going to be the cause of judgment later, but it's it's a, it is the judgment now. It's the beginning stages of judgment. Which, so yeah, then let's yeah. come back to your question, Brother Russ, which is how much does chapter one apply to us? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, we took a little rabbit trail about being in the judgment of God now, but how, how does that? Well, that's what I was trying to make the I connection okay. on. No, well, his I, and that's why I'm asking like this. Our listeners, again, we prove to you once again that we have not talked about this in advance. We're having these discussions <laughs> in real time. But genuinely, I mean, is that is that the connection of uh, well, of the application? Yes, but I think there's more application than just that of okay. chapter one, mm -hmm. because I Fair think there's enough. I, I think there's a I think there's a very personal application here in the sense of uh, so many of us. I think every Christian at some point, as you walk with the Lord, you go through seasons or periods where you're frustrated with what God is doing or not doing, where He doesn't seem fair, He doesn't seem right, He doesn't seem just. It doesn't seem like what he's doing matches up with what you know of his character. And so in that sense, I think there's personal application 
to what every Christian lives through and, and what they experience, which matches up with so many other stories in the Word of God, so many other characters in the Word of God. Mm-hmm. I, I, so I think I think it applies in that sense, too, which is more limited than what you were talking about. No, that's fine. Absolutely. So then you get to you get to chapter two and you have this great reminder that the just shall live by faith. So there's the application, regardless of, of where we are on chapter one, the application of chapter two seems very clear that the answer to living in a world that is under judgment is to live by faith. But don't sk- don't run past verse one of chapter two. Okay. Because what he says is, could Alexander Scorby read that for us? <laughs> Go ahead, Martin. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. I think that is one of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament. Mm. Because in, in chapter one, he's arguing with God, saying, God, you're wrong. And at the beginning of chapter two, he essentially says, now I'm going to sit down and I'm going to shut up because I know I'm the one who's really wrong. So yeah. I'll, mm-hmm. I've told you how I feel, but I know even in telling you how I feel, I know I'm wrong because you're always right and I'm not. So I'm going to sit here where you tell me why exactly I was wrong. I think that's yeah, such exactly. great faith. Well, the human side of me is saying, this can't be right, this can't be right, this can't be right. The spiritual inner man yes. knows that yes. God is never wrong. And so, there. I mean, good night. That almost describes where I've been in recent days and just different things where I'm like, this isn't right. And then I'm, I sit down and pray mm-hmm. and say, but Lord, I know that it's right because it's what you have for me. And therefore, teach me. Yeah. I mean, that's, that mm-hmm. is the, and, and by the way, not a, I'm not talking about a huge struggle in my life either. So, on a scale of what Habakkuk, oh, I did it, of what Habakkuk is dealing with is, I mean, this is his whole nation. His people are being destroyed. Yeah. It's it's not fair. It's not right. His life is turned upside down. And Lord, I don't understand it. doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to sit down and let you teach me what is right. But isn't this one of the big struggles? And that that's good. I, th- I think that is that personal application of like that broader national truth. Um, but isn't this what America is going through without wanting to be a Brit on the outside looking in, (laughs) but we're the greatest nation on earth and surely God wouldn't use filling the gap to judge us. Um, so I, I, I want to be careful not to tread on toes too much. But, well, and and I know what I know what you're not doing, and that is you're not equating America with Israel. By the way, just in case any listeners get no, there, no, <laughs> you know I, you know, you know I I believe very strongly that there's a difference. You know, of course, between Israel and the church, and Israel's was in covenant relationship with God. America is not. With that said, though, I've been digging into digging into it again, and it's interesting. In Genesis, I had it written down somewhere, fifteen or sixteen. God tells Abraham that his descendants would go down into Egypt for 400 years. And he said that the, the nations of Canaan would be judged, but the sins of the Amorites was not yet full. So mm-hmm. I don't believe God deals with nations in the way he used to, but at the same time, I think he does. So I know that's an absolute <laughs> contradiction. Um, but I, I, think, I think most nations in the world today, can they can think in their minds – I know what it's like for my nation to not be what it used to be. Um, you know, I joke that one of Britain's biggest exports is Independence Day. There's over like 60 countries in the world in the world that celebrate an Independence Day from Britain. There are many nations who have been invaded. There are nations we learned on the map growing up, even you, Stephen, as young as you are, although you're American, you don't get taught geography, but um, as soon as I'm just <laughs> making everyone mad. But Easy, like, there are nations that Easy. <laughs> There are nations that no longer exist. And I think that yeah. understanding of an American, of how severe the judgment could be, right. and that America could fall, which is, that's the unpardonable sin, isn't it? In some circles to even utter that phrase. But I think it's getting into that mindset that really brings us to the place of chapter two, verse one, where Habakkuk, with that in mind of his judgment, of the judgment upon his nation coming and saying, I'm going to listen to you, Lord. Yeah, as as unclear and seemingly contradictory as your statement was, I agree with it, and I think it's very mm-hmm. good in the sense that God still does deal with people on a national level. I mean, i I think we're I think we're going to see that. Well, mm-hmm. I think the clear uh, the Bible shows the revelation of God. Right, it shows us who God is, 
in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we see patterns of how God functions, of how he operates. And part of the way God operates is he does judge corporately. And the proof of the fact he's not done doing that is the book of Revelation. Because in the Mm -hmm. book of Revelation, he's clearly pouring out corporate judgment upon humanity, not just for individual sins, but for for all of us in a sense. So God is not done judging corporately by any means in, in this era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good well, I have a question. What do you think about chapter two, verse two, where he says, write the vision and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it? Because isn't there some controversy or controversy around the meaning of this? Could you explain for us the controversy of Habakkuk chapter two, verse two? And then we'll tell you why you're wrong. I, I don't fully understand it. That's why I thought I'd ask it. <laughs> oh, because I don't think you there's can't a controversy. Answer, you can't answer a question with a question. <laughs> Shoot, if I can't answer a question with a question, then I have to get off social media. It's the only way you can function. <laughs> right? Nice. See what I did? The, the mute and blog button is how you function on social media, but that's another conversation. Yes, it is. Can we answer the what question now, guys? <laughs> I don't know what kind of verse he's talking about. Right. So, so I don't either. Verse, verse two, so it's that phrase where he says, write the vision, make it plain upon the tables, that he may run that readeth it. What does that mean? Oh, I think the Lord's telling him to write down what God is telling him in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't you? Yeah, but then he may run that readeth it. What is, what do oh, we do with that? You, uh, I, I've used that, I use that line, line, that's verse in my book, Freed from Sin, uh, in a chapter about uh, running, essentially the chapter was about ru- going quickly to, to obey God. Uh, the Bible talks about our walk, right? And, the more clearly I understand God's commandments, Paul in the New Testament prays for people to, to know the will of God completely, because the more you know it, the more clear it is, the better you can obey it. And so I think essentially he's saying, write down what I'm telling you, what, what you know, this conversation we're having, so that my people can be obedient who are reading this. They can be even more obedient than they would be otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at, at verses two and three together. Verse two, it's like he's pointing them in a direction, right? So that he may run that readeth it. Well, the problem is, is that Habakkuk is still conflicted about how God is doing what he's doing, not what he's doing. I mean, Martin, you pointed that out. He said, God judge, judge the people. And God said, okay, mm-hmm. I will. And he's like, and Habakkuk's like, wait, wait, not like that, not like that. But then verse three says, the vision is yet for an appointed time. And at the end, it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Now, read that carefully, because that can sound confusing. But to me, what I'm seeing here, almost crystal clear, is that right now what God's saying doesn't make sense, but when the time comes, it will all be revealed. So run with it before it's clear. Run with it because it's obedience. Run with it because it's what God said. Isn't that what we have to do as Christians? Like Mm -hmm. We have to go forward whether we understand or not. That's faith. The understanding, the understanding comes after obedience, not before. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. That that's that two, verses two and three. That's kind of what I get from that. Mm-hmm. And then that leads us leads us into that famous phrase of the Reformation and of mm-hmm. so many other things that his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Mm. Yeah, beautiful verse. So I have a question then on the next few verses. Our verses five through eight. Speaking of Belshazzar, when it says he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell and as a death. And it goes on and on and talks about his drunkenness, talks about all that. Um, there are some people who say that's referring to the overthrow of the Babylonian Empire and the Medes of the Persians coming in. What do you guys think about that particular set of verses? You- is that what that means? Do you think it shifts in verse 9 to talk about Israel again, or do you think it's still talking about Babylon, just more widely? Mm, I don't know. Because there's there's two schools of thought here. One is what you're talking about, which is that this is a specific prophecy about Belshazzar, and that the whole of chapter 2 is why God will judge Babylon. And then there's a school of thought that says chapter 2 is why God will judge Israel. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I could see both yes. sides of that. Yeah. Martin, it seemed seemed like that was kind of your line of thinking. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with Tom. I'm not going to expand on it. 
too much more because I think it is. Um, You're going to agree with Tom's question. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to agree with Tom's the second question. time it's happened, right? Because I, I did. I asked a question. Do you think it's yeah. Jerusalem or do you think it's Babylon? And he said, "I'm going to agree with that." I'm just going to agree with Tom's question. No, I, 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 it is something I'm still looking at. To be honest, I, I think when I preach through it, I probably just keep it in the segment of addressing Israel, um, but. Whichever one it's directing towards specifically, I think it could apply to both. Which is why, which is exactly why there is a discussion about it, right? Because you could walk Mm -hmm. through each of those and you could find those in Israel and you could find them in Babylon, which then leads to Habakkuk's whole frustration, isn't it? It's it's not that he's saying his people are innocent because Mm -hmm. he's not. He never argues that his people are innocent. He argues that God is using somebody worse to judge his people. Like you said, mm-hmm. Martin, judge judge the people. I'm not like that because I don't want you to use them. No. They're worse. And it's something we didn't really touch on that much, but oppression of the people is something that as Christians we ought to be concerned about. Um, and that may be something we can hone in on another time because I know we, we're kind of moving ahead. But, um, yeah, I, I think it does continue in that vein. And it is interesting in verse 5, he brings out the danger of wine. Do you want to expand on that? Maybe read some Twitter threads from your <laughs> past few weeks. I mean, if they if they had drunk in moderately, then surely none of this devastation would have happened. But uh, it's because they got drunk. <laughs> Man, that was crispy. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get letters. Good. We already get letters. Good. I'm I'm so fired up about this, Ben. Not about. <laughs> you, you understand? Yeah. But anyway, it's we should a, probably it's a move on. Foreshadowing of things to come, come for on, our man. listeners. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that, I think it definitely can be applied both ways, like you said. And and again, you just see the the outworking of evil in a society, and it's devastating. Um, and I think if you look in our society, if you took away the fire department, the police department, hospitals, you know there'll be blood running in our streets. So much of what seems civilized in our nation, yes. it's at the tip of the sword, you know, and yes. and, we're, and we're good at fixing things and preventing things, but the heart of man is desperately wicked and we're on the precipice. And, and I think that's why uh, things are getting worse from a violent standpoint, from a crime standpoint, because I think morality is tied to religion. And as America becomes less religious, right, a famine of hearing the word of God. Mm-hmm. She will not restrain herself. And of course, there's an occupying force, you know, in the sense of the Holy Spirit. He's a person, not a force, but an occupying presence there that controls sin somewhat. And so does the government of man. But you you see violence dramatically increased over the past, I would say, 60 years or so. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's because we've gotten, that's the judgment of God we're experiencing, is, is yeah. the streets running with blood. Yeah. And... and- Let's get to verse eighteen through twenty of chapter two. Um, it's Can we it's awesome. Verse to, sorry, our sorry, our a wonderful host. But uh, verse no, no, fourteen. No, go ahead. I, I think there's there's again just a shift towards hopefulness. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, Habakkuk is wrestling with this is what I know is going to happen, but I also know this is going to happen. How do I reconcile these two prophecies? Uh, because mm-hmm. the day will come when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And so it's that turning point. That's a great point because the prophets, they, they do wrestle with that, right? That that they, they prophesy two different messages. They prophesy destruction. Mm-hmm. You just think of the Messiah. They prophesy the Messiah's death and the Messiah ruling and reigning. And they didn't necessarily understand because it seemed conflicting. But yeah, that's the case where God's promising judgment upon Israel, but also exaltation of Israel. Because I think mm-hmm. that verse refers to the millennium. I agree. Um, wow. So anyway, uh, I just wanted to kind of, I think that's a, a important connect in verse to where you're going to now. Right. No, I'm glad you brought it up. I'm, it's my job to keep the, keep the thing rolling. It's your guys' job to either distract me or correct me. <laughs> Put a wrench <laughs> Slow in the down. Works. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say about verses 18 and 19 is that I love the fact there's almost this mockery of idolatry. It says, what profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, 
awake. To the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. So there's this there's this attack on the idolatry of stones and wood and and precious metal. And then there is this stark contrast in verse 20, because immediately after those two verses, it says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. So it, it, it is. And that reminds me of the psalmist in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. It reminds mm-hmm. me of the book of Job, where Job comes to terms finally. You know, He's arguing with God through the whole book, and then finally God shows up, and then Job says, I'm, I'm just going to be quiet now. There's nothing mm-hmm. else to say. It's mm-hmm. just the reaction of, of God is doing exactly what he wants to do. God is sovereign. Psalm mm-hmm. 2, right? The heathen rage, what does God do? He's in heaven and he laughs. Uh, yeah. Book of Hosea says the same thing. Where's God? He's in heaven doing exactly what he wants what he pleases. Yeah. And then you moving into chapter three, uh, you know, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon the instrument mentioned. How do you say that correctly, Tom? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. My turn. Okay. My turn. I was looking up a verse and you, you got ahead of me, Martin. The, the other comparison there is you've got the comparison of Job with God in verse 20, but mm-hmm. I was looking for Psalm 115 where it says, our God is in the heavens. He hath, he hath done, done whatsoever. whatsoever he hath pleased. Yes. Mm-hmm. Immediately followed by this, again, mockery of idolatry. The idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Mm-hmm. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them. Now, there's there's a comparison like here. Yes. yes. Yeah, because this one mocks both. Both passages kind of corrects or rebukes both the idols and the human hands that made them it says they that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Doesn't that remind wow. you of Elijah at, at yeah. my, on my Carmel? It does. Mm-hmm. Where's your God? You know, mm-hmm. is he yeah. sleeping? Yep. Maybe he's asleep. him up. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Is he on a long journey? Yes. I, I just love that. I was, as we were reading this, I thought of that. I thought I'm pretty sure that has the same idea. So I had to look it up to make sure, but man, Mm-hmm. What a great, uh, what a great verse! Our God is in the heavens; He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. That's our God. That's great. Amen. That's an excellent. Go ahead, point. Martin. Chapter three. <laughs> no, I, I just um, again now the turning point I think has really begun, and He says, "O Lord, I have heard Thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive Thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy." And mm. and we've said several times just that turn of phrase. I mean, the truth alone is beautiful, but the phrasing of it, the wording of it is just without comparison. Um, revive thy work. And I think we we mentioned revival in a previous uh, podcast, and I, I think that's a great definition of revival there. Revive your work. You know, this is about you. Revival is about God accomplishing what he wants, and we could delve into that more. But then the end of that verse, in wrath, remember mercy. Yeah, Lord, we deserve judgment, but when it comes, you know, remember mercy. Reminds mm. you of James, mercy rejoiceth against judgment. But to go mm. back to that word revive, you can almost see this flowing like a like a thread through a scarlet thread through a rope. So he talks about the fact that the idols are dead, right? But who's alive? God is. God's mm. people, the just shall live by faith, the contrast of life and death. And he's talking about his people here, and he says, God, we need new life. Revive mm-hmm. us, speaking of his own people, bring life to us again, because that's what revival is. It's it's life again, and mm-hmm. that's what God does. Everything about God, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life. Amen. Wow. So what is what is the summary of chapter three? I mean, he, this is, there are a lot of, a lot of words here, and it, it, it's on, it's in a, it's written in a very dramatic fashion, it seems, like like much of the book of Habakkuk is. Um, he says things like like this. You know, he's talking about the power of God. He's talking about the Lord being dis- questioned. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Verse 9, thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word. Basically, nothing, nothing will stand against the Lord. I mm-hmm. think he's using... 
a dramatic language or poetic imagery to reference God's events, uh, events in Israel's national existence where God has displayed his power. I think if you if you walk through those those verses relatively carefully, you could study out and find exactly which ones he's referencing. But you'll find the prophets often do that, and even the apostles of the New Testament they'll reference past events that God did for national Israel. You know, when God parted the Red Sea, when God displayed His power in these magnificent, stupendous ways. Chapter three, I think, is a is a song. It's a hymn mm-hmm. of praise to God and also faith in God. And so I think that first part of it, or maybe the first two thirds of it, where he's, you know, after his plea for revival and plea for mercy, he's talking about how powerful God is. That's what I think. What do you think, Martin? No, I'd agree. And again, I think it's that imminency of judgment. Thy bow was made quite naked. You know, it's been taken out of the. Um, ah, yeah. You know, it's it's seen. It's it's not hidden, and you know. Stevens, the hunter among us, he'll know the terminology and trying to think of, but you know, it's uh, I was gonna, it's not the holster, but you know what I mean. Quiver. You know, it's yeah. Well, the quiver is where you keep the arrows, I guess. But I, I think it's that idea of you know his bow is out, like he's ready to judge. It's imminent, um, you know, and and he's yeah. drawn because he's ready to fire. The, the psalmist says, the, the psalmist says his bow is bent, which that's a mm-hmm. lot of strain on you, right? I mean, you don't pull back, yep. you don't bend your bow until you're just about ready to fire. Oh, yeah. It's that same mm-hmm. idea. That's that's a great thought. Yeah. What do you think about verse 13? I don't want to jump ahead too far, but he says, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. What do you think he's talking about there? Kind of interested in your thoughts. Hmm. Wound is the head out of the house of the wicked. I don't know. I'd have to look at the context more closely. I wish I had an intelligent answer for you, but I don't. Man, I'm just so I agree with your question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it it's a good way. It's a good way to my time. Podcast. Yes. <laughs> it was. Uh, I remember one of the first times I was in the deep south, and we were at this this like little cafe thing no well it wouldn't be a cafe what would they have called it i don't know um but it was this restaurant in the middle of nowhere and i remember this waitress coming over and asking me a question and i just went uh yes please and it wasn't either or question so the people with me laughed and she just looked at me like you idiot it's one or the other um so but no i, I think uh yeah it would be interesting to dig into verse 13 a little bit more um, Do but, you think you know, the, the phrase anointed refers to Christ? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Um, you know, obviously there is, you know, the, the general meaning, I guess, is that even though they're going to be judged, they're also going to be delivered. Um, but there, whether it's a, I'm looking, I'm looking at this. I mean, there, there's some, there's some disagreement on that. There are some who say it's a foreshadowing, uh, an anticipation of the Messiah. There are others who would say things like. It's best to understand the anointed as reference to God's people, Israel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's one of the, it's another one of those that's. Kind yeah, of I think you got to be really conflict. careful. Yeah, with right. with referring to, because then then you're gonna not then, but that's the same rationale that the, that the Jews used to, used to explain away Isaiah fifty three. Mm-hmm. They're talking about Israel, not about Christ. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. this is about Christ because I haven't studied it, and and you know I'm not right. Tell you it is but. well, and I think the opposite is true: is you have to be careful attributing something in the Old Testament to Christ that is not. You're right. You're right. You know, but it's definitely worth looking further into. Of course, it is. It's the Bible. What, what am I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amen, just brother. again, you know, we're we're kind of winding it down here, but. Verse 15, thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. Um, in verse 16, he's he's talking about the impact that his visualization of God had on his body. And it reminds me of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he, boy, it, it brought him low. Woe is me. Everybody, everybody in the Bible who saw God responded the same right. way. They fell flat on their face. Right, right. It's... My my good friend Randy Dignan always talks about the chapters before Isaiah six, where it's woe unto these people and woe unto these people and woe unto these people. But when he saw the Lord, it was woe 
as me. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, whoa. <laughs> you know. And yeah. of course, Randy can preach it like only Randy could preach it. But uh, um, <laughs> that's good. So, so then we come to the last two or three verses, which I think, again, are some of the most precious in the entire Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So I'll read yeah, I think you although should. The fig tree, uh, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Mm. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That is such great faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, from desolation again, to complete restoration. Yeah, yeah. Be- beautiful in its truth and beautiful in its phrasing and and how he can turn it to a message of hope in the end. And I think there's hope for us. You know, if if we're in a place where we are being judged, not where judgment is coming, then we're further along in the cycle. And so that means deliverance, I think, is closer at hand. Yeah. Um and I think the Romans one that we've mentioned, that's not a, I don't think it's meant to be a progressive, this is how church history unfolds until boom, you get to the end and it's the rapture and then the tribulation. I think it's cyclical and we've seen these things go around. So the way that Habakkuk ends with this tone of hope and faith and resignation to God's will and his place in it is simply to have faith, I think we can do the same. Uh, we're in terrible times but we can have faith and we can pray, Lord, revive thy work and wrath, remember mercy. Right. G. Campbell Morgan wrote a sermon entitled Rejoice in the Lord, Not the Circumstances. And it was based on these verses, mm. uh, verses 17 and 18, Which, right? You've got you've got the bad sure. circumstances, mm-hmm. yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. There's so many connections to that. There's Paul in Philippians. Chapter four, rejoice mm-hmm. to the Lord always. There's Jeremiah in chapter, I forget the chapter, but where he says, he says, thou art my praise. Jeremiah can't praise God for the circumstances, but he can praise God for God because God is the mm-hmm, same. Right. God is awesome no matter how the circumstances are. Again, you That's see right. these patterns. You see this all through the word of God, these connections. And Habakkuk's in one of these. He looks out and he sees judgment. He sees more judgment coming. He asks God to give mercy. He asks God for revival. He tells God he trusts him, but he knows judgment is coming. But even if judgment comes and even if, you know, he lives through that judgment, Hezekiah said, as long as the judgment's not in my day, but, but Habakkuk's got so much more faith and trust. He says, you know, even if I live to see that judgment and it's in my day, I'm still going to rejoice in you, God. And if that is not, that is such a, that, that is such an application to the people who look at me when I stand in the pulpit on Sunday morning. That's where mm. all of us live. We've got to rejoice in the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's such a uh, – well, there, there's just such a theme there that, as you said, Tom, it it continually presents itself. And I, I do think you'll find the Bible says we ought to rejoice in even the circumstances eventually. But the faith that we have begins by rejoicing in spite of, and then you have – Great testimonies of people who said, I finally thanked God for my cancer. I thanked God for the valley. Well, you don't get to that point mm-hmm. until you thank him in spite of the valley. It's beautiful. Hosea said, I just preached this last night. Hosea says uh, that the the valley of, of I'm going to forget the reference, but it means trouble, that the door of hope is in the valley of trouble. Wow. Mm-hmm. I think it's chapter 2, verse 15 or 16 or something right in there in, in Hosea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and ultimately, it, it does culminate in truth. Truth is, the Lord God is my strength. That's verse 19. That's the final, final verse of the book. And he will make my feet like hind's feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places. Which, by the way, at the beginning of the book, Habakkuk would have said, there's no way I can walk there. <laughs> I'm incapable mm-hmm. of doing this. Eh, that's right, you are. But in in the strength of the Lord, we can go. What was it the psalmist that said, I will go in the strength of the Lord? Sure. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Well, now that we've done everybody's sermon prep for them for this weekend, we can uh, wrap this up. <laughs> this no, is the first I, time we've I, done this. We have, and I've enjoyed it. Uh, I, I would yeah. covet from our listeners' patience with us. We're just talking through things. We're not. Sure. We haven't 
preached 17 messages already. Uh, we're just talking through a book of the Bible, so be patient with us. Amen. And we hope we hope you've enjoyed it. Amen. Well, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today to this podcast. And as always, you know, spread the word. Let people know about it. If you could share it on social media, we'd certainly be appreciative. But if not, just enjoy and and be blessed by the content if that's uh, if that's possible for you today. And uh, we're glad that you've listened. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.